All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Canadians? What the fuck, Canucks? How's that? It's going to be in Montreal for the uh, Just for Laughs Festival. That just reminded me. I'm not plugging it, but I might as well plug it. I will be up there. This is Mark Marin. This is WTF, the podcast. David Sedaris is on the podcast today, which was pretty amazing. It was pretty exciting to meet David Sedaris. I'd met him maybe once before, maybe 1995 in a peculiar situation at the Aspen Comedy Festival, which I believe I will uh, bring up. It wasn't peculiar. It was just a weird place for anybody to be doing comedy in that altitude, unable to breathe, trying to uh, behave like somebody who's uh, got it together when you're gasping for air and your stomach is full of uh, gas and you probably have uh, diarrhea from altitude sickness. And you constantly feel like you're going to black out. Not an easy place to do the job. That's all I'm saying. Uh, look, I really appreciate all the feedback and excitement that there was around the first season of Marin, which ended on Friday. Uh, I know those uh, last couple episodes, especially the, uh, especially the last one, a little gnarly. But, uh, but I thought well-balanced and exciting. Come on, man. What, do you just want to be comfortable all the time? That's not the way life works, is it? Let art imitate reality a bit occasionally but realize that it is not reality very interesting thing that happens in the culture today is that many people don't really quite know the difference between reality and fiction i'm not sure i do even uh, given what i do for uh for the way i do it i gotta get a bigger house i it's it's gotten a little nuts y- you know the issue here is that i interview here at the house i don't want to move my studio i enjoy interviewing the garage i'm probably going to try to build an addition onto the house as opposed to try to get a new house which are inflated the primary issue is that jessica my fiance would like to have another bathroom so when iggy pop or uh cheech and chong whoever uh that you know they have a bathroom that they can use that doesn't have to be our bathroom or her bathroom i get it but i realized today that Having one bathroom as a couple, when you live together, builds intimacy because at some point, you, you know, you, you, you each kind of pace yourselves. All right, she's got her shower time. I got my shower time. Sometimes we shower together, but a lot of times it's separate. And that first day, that first day where they're having their shower time and you bang on the door and say, look, I, I thought I could hold it, but I can't. That moment, that is a big step in a relationship. The moment where you have no choice but to take a dump in the presence of another person that that is like almost an engagement that i think on on some levels that you are married in a soul way at that moment you know whether that holds or not it doesn't matter but that is the intimacy available from a first house when you're with somebody just know that just know that 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 moment is coming if it hasn't come yet and that uh there's no reason to run from it just sit in it you can make faces and go oh my god Jesus, what did you eat? Whatever, but th- it's a powerful moment. It's a bonding moment. Don't run from it. Don't run from it. I, I thought I could hold it, but I can't. I'm coming in. Sorry. And then just sit there like a shivering dog at the end of a leash as the owner just looks at you and goes, okay, don't be uncomfortable. Don't be uncomfortable. Maybe you should say that to the person, whoever it is in the relationship. It's okay. It's okay. That we're not in a hurry here. Come on, just, you know, just don't freak out. Fortunately, when you're in a relationship, you don't have to bag it. <laughs> yeah. So David Sedaris is on, and I, I, he's, he's one of the greatest humorists, uh, really, I think, that this country has produced, certainly lately, but probably ever. And he's a, he's a sweet guy. And he's one of those guys, he's written a lot of books. I've read some of some of the books, and uh, I think he's very funny. 
Uh, but I, 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 I didn't, I didn't really know him, and I know that uh, many people have a relationship with him. But I wanted to have one as well, and I was fortunate that uh, you know right away he got in the garage and told me how much he liked my book and read some of it to me, which is very flattering and humbling, and also completely, uh, you know, ego engorging at the same time. I had engorged ego for a few minutes, uh, but we 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 were able to talk about actually memoir writing and memoir in general, and that. You know, you know, I always do autobiographical stuff. I mean, the show, and, and I'm having some very new experiences that I've never had before around using my life as fodder and as a basis for what I put out in the world as my art or my expression. The show, when I watched some episodes of Marin on IFC, I was literally uncomfortable with watching myself work through things and be involved in things that were sort of heightened versions of some things that happened in my life, at least emotional. There's an emotional reality to the show. You know, if all the things, obviously I can't transcribe my life precisely, but uh, there's an emotional reality and there's some memory, uh, you know, mixed in with fictionalization. When you write memoir, you're really dealing with memory and you have to be careful. Memory is naturally revisionist. When you remember something, it's a revision. It's your side of the memory. It's your point of view. It's the emotions you had in that memory. And some memories get sort of chiseled and, and, and reshaped as you grow, as you get older, as parts of that memory diminish. You, do, you, you can sit there and go, this is the truth. This is what happened. But you always have to qualify it with, well, this is my side of it. Sure, you can be a journalist about your life and you know who, what, when, where, why, and answer those questions. But the emotions of it are going to be specific. The real question that comes into play is, well, how do I treat other people in my memory? How are other people going to be affected by that? And I admit to becoming more empathetic and certainly being less empathetic, you know, when I started the podcast and started doing the work that I do, but, but there is a selfishness to it and you have to deliberate things, you know, like right now, quite honestly, uh, my father and I aren't speaking because of you know, what what went on, what he assumed was on the show or what he assumed was in the book. I don't know whether he's read either, but but I do have a heavy heart about it because I felt it was important to include my experiences with him and a few other people in the book uh, as part of my life because they defined me. And I think it's important to sort of to illustrate who you are or to to bring resonance to a story. You are going to include people that are in your life. And it's tricky business because it is your perspective. And it is your point of view and it is your side of a story. But of course, I thought, yeah, well, man, I handled that pretty well. I let him off easy. You know, I, I handled my first uh, and second marriages pretty well. You know, I didn't go into detail. It was my side of it. But now I find that, that I'm actually, you know, I'm going to have to sort of regroup with my father and figure out where he's at with this stuff. There is a price to pay when you commit to using your life as your art. And I'm not calling myself an artist, but it is what I draw from, you know, almost exactly, is the emotions that are loaded up in me from my immediate interactions with my life. And, you know, I don't know, I wouldn't say that I've made enemies, but I've caused people discomfort. And I think what I'm experiencing now, you know, after the show and after the book is that, you know, I have a sort of postpartum empathy, <laughs> which means, wow, I might have I pushed that too far. I'm not saying it's not true. It is true. You know, I vetted everything and I, you know, I, I went over everything. It is my side of my experience. But did I really take into consideration how it would affect other people? Yeah, I did. But now, like, you know, you sort of pay for it. One of the other episodes was sort of loosely based on somebody. And now, you know, he's mad at me. For what? I, you know, it, 
it was a characterization. It's all very, becomes very personal to the individual. But it, in my mind, well, it'll pass and it's not untrue. And I thought I handled it deftly and, and with humor. But, you know, there's still other people's feelings at stake. That's what you get when you don't make things up. That's how the, that's the burden of heart that you have to carry when you don't make things up or you just amplify or, you know, reprocess or fictionalize things slightly. Feelings are at stake. But I think it's worth it. I think honesty is worth it. I really do. So now let's enjoy some, uh, some chat with me and David Sedaris. Do you have any advice for me? Um, when I, I I tend to just talk, and then uh, so you don't read from the book. No, I do a bit, but I, it's hard to select what to read. Really? Oh, I got some ideas for you. I, <laughs> I mean, I think what's nice about it is that the chapters are all great great length to read in a bookstore. I think. Yeah. So you told me the cover was a mistake. That's what you're telling me. I think you didn't have to be on the cover of your right. book, right? Because I I feel like sometimes when people are on the cover of their book. It's a way of saying, not a real book. Well, maybe you know they, I mean? like yeah. it's a celebrity book, right. but it's a real book. Right. And I think it, the, the, the writing is just fantastic. And I think it's hard. Sometimes you see people trying to write jokes and they try to write timing onto the page and it just looks gimmicky. Right. But this, this doesn't at all. <laughs> it just sounds like, and, it's, and I, I think anybody could read it out loud. Yeah. You, it's like you're reading it right now and laughing. Well, <laughs> one thing I like about I feel like kind of the enemy reading books on an iPad. Yeah. But one thing I kind of like about it is that you've got those notes at your at your fingertips, right? Yeah. Um, she didn't say it like that. What she said was, "I'm leaving." Then she took her vagina and left. <laughs> just very specific. Uh, so many great bits in here. Um, well, I'm very flattered that you like it because you're sort of a pro at this, and you know I come into your stuff and. Like, I always wonder, after I wrote my book, because I'm so uh, sort of compulsive and intense, that I should have had more fun writing it. Um, I, I feel like I, I wrote uh, my heart out to a degree, but I don't know that I, I, I could have, I feel like I could have been funnier, but I imagine I always will feel like, like that. Maybe because, I don't know, maybe because you're, you're on lines, but I mean, I, how, okay, it was a very sad orgasm. My dick was crying. How did you not laugh when you wrote <laughs> when you wrote that line I love this too my father needs to have an effect on people he needs to either drag them down to his level or blast through them with his anger yeah well yeah that's uh, that's not a laugher no but I thought <laughs> I thought it was a really good summation of somebody um I, okay <laughs> alright this is the best episode ever he didn't know his own strength and would snap at you for no reason yeah. a bite from a stunning dog doesn't hurt any less so true <laughs> so true I don't you know I said something last night on stage yeah, about yeah. about not liking dogs and I just felt I mean the audience didn't leave but 60% of them no longer liked me really after I said that what's your experience with dogs I mean that would don't make trust them how can you trust them a cat will just go away mm-hmm. yeah no I've been I I mean I haven't been torn up bitten but yeah uh, are you reading my book still <laughs> yeah I am <laughs> Um, that was interesting to me about the dog, about d dog shows when yeah. you were young, going yeah. to dog shows. Yeah. It's probably more there, right? <laughs> All right. If you ever wake up in the morning and the first thing you say is, oh, fuck, not again, you might be a little bitter. 
<laughs> that is such a good thing to say to yourself in the morning if you're bitter. Um, what else are you going to say? Oh, you know, also because I'm on yeah. tour so often, yeah. then I, I related to a lot of what you had to say about university towns are okay for a few hours before you realize that you were old and silly. That's it exactly. Do you um, feel that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, you said in, in the book how when you when you go on tour, sometimes you're downtown, and the downtown, 90% of the time, dries up after 5 o'clock, yeah. and it's just kind of sad for that reason. Yeah. Or then you're in Ann Arbor, yeah. you know? Right. And you realize that everyone's 18. Yeah. Like, really young. I mean, that's a that's an important moment you, you know, to realize that, like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not in college. I'm just not in college. Um. I like this too. Okay. Running away works. Mm. Sometimes you have to change it up. New people, new restaurants, new laundromats, new barista, new life. Yeah, the adage is true that wherever you go, there you are. But you are in an entirely new setting. It is new to you. Yeah. Or, or at least the old one. Yeah. In a new context. And that's not nothing. Yeah. You're right. It's a good second best, I think. I'll yeah. take it any day. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, when, after you've been on, I start. I'm on this tour. I started April second, mm-hmm. and I've I had April major. Oh, so but you're but you're a big act. I mean, when you go on a book tour, it's like me going on a stand up tour. I mean, it's like you know, you do big rooms, big crowds, a lot of demands. Um. <laughs> okay, <laughs> when you eat that hot pepper, yeah, I got into bed and made the mistake of touching my balls. <laughs> This was the next level of the journey. <laughs> How did you not laugh when you were writing this? <laughs> I did. I think I did. I think I, I don't know if I laughed as much as I was satisfied. Um, <clears throat> I was just trying to get through this, this thing that was happening, this Holocaust in my face <laughs> from eating a hot pepper. Oh, I got one the other night, and that's such a good description of it. Oh, it was... Uh, um, uh, uh, uh. And going through the different stages of it. Yeah. Oh, when you when you thought you had cancer of your mouth. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that's not mouth cancer. I couldn't have mouth cancer. Anger. Fuck, I have mouth cancer. Yeah. What else could it be? Bargaining. God, I know I don't really believe in you, but please let this not be mouth cancer. I will do anything. Depression. I have mouth cancer. It's over. I wish I could die now. Then finally acceptance. Maybe I don't need my mouth <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, I laughed so hard reading this book. I <laughs> well, thank you. I don't even know what to say. I'm very, uh, I'm very excited and uh, humbled by that. <sighs> now I got to tell the publisher about the cover. Well, I just don't think you needed to be on the cover. I mean, I think their fear is, though. You know, I, I mean, I, I, it's probably been a while since you've been in that that game where it's like they're just hoping to God somebody will buy the book. Uh, you know, with that book, in that uh, I'm not a known quantity. Uh, they could appreciate that I had these uh, listeners. You know, I didn't quite. I made the extended bestseller list for one week, and now I'm gone. So I think that they were just hedging their bets. They were saying like anything that'll get people to recognize this guy uh, will be good to sell the book. But how many bookie things did they do? Like I don't know. I mean, why well, did Terry Gross? Oh, I heard you on Terry Gross. I thought you were great on Terry Gross. Oh, thank you. I made her laugh. Everyone was very excited that I got her to snort. That that seemed to be a big thing. Did you talk for a long time? 
We did. And I don't know if it was, uh, she was having some technical difficulties at first. So there was a lot of this sort of like, we're having, uh, we're in a new studio and we'd start and then we'd stop. And I didn't know if that was her thing that she did to, to kind of, you know, to, but I, I think it was genuine. We talked for like, we talked for a while. She always seems to want to talk about dirty things with me. I don't know why. Like she talked about porn with me and then she put it on the website. She didn't put it in the, 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 the episode proper. Because she'll, I mean, sometimes she doesn't like to talk to you face to face. Like even Never. if you're in Philadelphia, I did it face to face with her one time. How was but, that? Well, because I kind of had gone out, you know, we'd had dinner together. And oh, really? I'd seen her here and there before. So, really? Yeah. So it was a little bit different, but still, I think her fear is that you're going to look at her and she's going to be looking at her notes and you're going to think, oh, she's not listening to me. Uh-huh. But she is. She's just looking at her. Does notes. she have a a fully formed personality in life? <laughs> did you did you talk to her about like like because when when you listen to her and when when I talk to her, she's very careful with, as to not let on anything almost about herself other than her interest. Right. I mean, I met her husband. Oh, I, I haven't been to her house. See, that would have been to me. That would have been like seeing a teacher, you know, out right. at a movie. It was a little bit to me too, and I've because I'm not even if somebody says oh call me the next time you come to town yeah I always think oh then then I'm gonna call and they're gonna be like god damn it why did I give this guy my number <laughs> do you feel that well yeah yeah all the time <laughs> like like sometimes I have people even like with you like you know you're over at my house but if you were to say like you know give me a buzz it'd be like yeah what am I gonna call David Sedaris about what are we gonna what are we gonna do see I would feel that same I with would me feel that same way oh yeah yeah, but I don't, do, I don't do anything. I mean, like, you know, uh, there, I, I, my life is very simple. You come over, we have coffee, I explain to why there's dishes, and that's that's my day. You know, the dishes are dirty. Yeah, but right? I, I mean, because I hear, you know, I listen to right, your podcast, right, and right. so I hear you, and you know you're talking, and you go, I know you go on tour, yeah. and you have your t- television show, and it right. just seems to me like you'd be very busy, and you wouldn't be able to remember how... You know, like most of the people you met. You no, I would remember, remember you. Remember I, them. I think I saw... Well, look right on my bulletin board. Do you see that postcard in the bottom left? Right up there with the oh, mice? Yeah. uh-huh. You sent me that. Oh, after... Because I think we talked... On Air America. On Air America. And I saved that. So I would definitely, you know... Uh, I wouldn't say like David who if you texted me. I mean, I saved a postcard from four years ago. Eight years ago. That was... Uh, I, uh, taxidermy collection in England that went on auction. Yeah, and so I was so excited, and and it went for like Damien Hurst bought things. It yeah. was like super super expensive. And you were there? No, no. Um, you could bid. You know, you could have people bid for you. Yeah, and it was just I just had no idea it would be that crazy. Were you looking for something? I love a thing like that. You do taxidermy mm-hmm. things. Well, like that was really special. Like those are guinea pigs in a classroom. Yeah, but. They, you know, they were pieces that were like rabbits dressed up in costumes, and they were all done during the Victorian era. And so I just love. People had absolutely no respect for animals at all. (laughs) Yeah. Plus, it's it's dead. Dress it up in a little costume or a little cape. Um, I'm sorry to keep doing this, but the chapter that you write about having a baby and your fears of having a baby. One of your fears is. The baby won't like me. Well, don't babies like everyone? Do, do they like everyone? I, don't I think know. babies will accept anybody, don't you? I mean, I guess if you handle them properly. I mean, I don't think they're really uh, registering acceptance as much as like they know they're not, they're eating now or they're, you know, being held by somebody that seems to care a little bit. I mean, I, I, I worry about people not liking me, but I guess I just don't ever worry about babies, babies? not liking me. How about three year olds? 
Is that does that is that now a person? You know, I feel better when nature likes me. You yeah. know what I mean? Like if an, we have a, a a bird in England that comes into our house and How big? It's a little robin. Oh, just but a, it doesn't fly and bang against it just walks into the house and hangs out for a while. And yeah. Being recognized by nature make, makes me feel Oh, good. I it see. makes me feel better than like a baby. I never thought about it like me. that. Yeah, I mean I have this uh this beat up stray cat that comes every day you know now I, i'm feeding him out front he i can't touch him but we clearly have an understanding i mean he he, he likes me but the, he's got psychological problems he's not going to let me touch it and uh I, I respect that but I, I i think he accepts me or at least the food i i, I liked your chapter in your book about cats mm. um because you seem to because it doesn't seem to be about taming them yeah, you seem to accept that these are feral cats, and that's the way it's going to go, and yeah, you kind of observe them. And yeah, you can't you can't tame them. They come around eventually, but they're all a little uh, they're a little crazy. Uh, but I, there's nothing I can do about that. It's one of the few things in my life where I can actually accept that I have no control over this particular situation, and that's just going to be half the way it's going to be. Do you have a lot of do you have squirrels here? Yeah, I don't deal with them at all. I don't. I I have no love for the squirrel. I mean, if I see it eating there, there's moments where you're like, oh, that's cute, but there's something filthy about them. I don't, I don't really like them. Do you like them? Well, I, I think it's different if you own a house. I own this know? house. Well, don't they get in the... Because no. they can tear up a house. No, they're, they're tree things. The things that get into the house... I've got possums and skunks that live under the house. I've had a skunk have babies under the house, which is horrible. But it's not, it's not a dead thing. Dead things are worse. But the skunk had babies and it was awful for, for a month or so. But then the babies come out and there's no way you can't love skunk babies. Four skunk babies mm. eating the cat food with their tails up. It's great. I have no problem with skunks. Possums, not so, I don't, no, I got no love for the possum. I mean, I don't resent it. I don't hate it. I feel bad for it. Yeah, they're pretty ugly. Ugly, horrible, horrible, ugly. Do you know the first time I met you? Do you know when it was? What wasn't it at, at, at Air America or was no, it? No, no. At Comedy Central. No, it was in Aspen, in oh, maybe wow. nineteen ninety-five. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You were there with Jackie Hoffman, yeah. David Barakoff. Uh, I think Amy was there, uh-huh. and you were doing the comedy festival, right. and you were doing a one-person show. We were do we were not a one-person show play. Yeah, we wrote a play called One Woman Shoe. One Woman and that's Shoe. What we were doing there. That's right. Now, what? How far along into things was that for you? Were you had you written many plays? I think that was like the third or fourth play that we did, and the one that kind of we did. I moved, did one when I first moved to New York, and it was at theater for the new city, and you know, not many people uh, came to see it. But I, I hadn't started on the radio yet. Yeah, and I just moved to New York, and then we did one uh there was one after that that i just kind of started on the radio and then we did stitches and stitch was was the one that like really kind clicked of, yeah because one then, one woman shoe was interesting what was the what was the premise of that thing well uh, clinton was doing his welfare reform right then and right. so the premise of the play was that if you were a woman yeah you couldn't get welfare or food stamps or ssi unless you learned to put on a one woman show <laughs> Just because it seemed like everyone had a one-person show then. Right. And, I, <laughs> yeah. and I was just trying to think of a skill that would just be kind of worthless. And so it was like <laughs> putting on a one-woman show. And uh, David Rakoff was in it. And yeah, Jackie Hoffman and Amy and Jody Lennon. And that was the first time I met any of them. And you know, Jody is the Jody in that story, in the Cats. 
I didn't know that. She lived downstairs from me in Astoria. She's the one that like came outside with me and helped me trap all of those cats. I had no idea. Yeah, that's Jody Lennon. And the, the first time I met your sister was when they were doing Exit 57 because I was doing a short attention span theater uh, in the same studio. So we had offices next to each other. So I met that whole crew there, oh. Paul and Amy. And I was all constantly ashamed of myself. Why? Because I was hosting a silly show and they were doing something creative and exciting. And I was, t I was throwing to clips. Do you, know, you don't know that horror. This next clip, it's... <laughs> <laughs> that's something you've been able to avoid in your career were, were you but at that at that same time were you doing air america no air america didn't happen until 2004 i mean that that oh, show okay, was in right. 1992 so the social element or the political element of that show you, you don't you're not highly politicized in your writing do you find no because usually when i go on a, do a show yeah usually i'm in, in theaters right yeah. i mean i'm on a book tour now but sure. usually i'm in theaters and I figure like 98% of the audience voted the way I did. Yeah. <clears throat> and so it just feels like pandering. You know, you can get up in front of the audience and you could say, uh, you could say Mitt Romney's an idiot and yeah. people will applaud, but you didn't say anything clever. No, that was, yeah, absolutely. That was the whole problem with Air America for me is that like, who am I really talking to? And, and the biggest problem about that kind of pandering is that sometimes you don't pander enough or more or specifically enough to one particular part of the liberal understanding so you can carry water for them but they'll still be like oh you didn't really get into that thing with the his limo driver and like, well, Ugh, it's not enough i noticed i was in san francisco a few yeah. weeks ago yeah and uh, so i was reading from the from the book and there's a story in which i mention uh cpac <laughs> and it's like okay i just say the word cpac and and then there was another point in the story when I had to mention, uh, oh gosh, I, I guess it was just an, a name that I a, a name that I had. There was something similar. And, yeah. Oh no, I had to mention. I mentioned a, an anti-abortion billboard that right. I, I saw in, right. in Minnesota. And I thought, so really, what would happen if everyone around you in the audience didn't know how you felt? politically about CPAC or an anti-abortion billboard. Right. I just, nowhere else in the country does that happen. Do you get that hissing? And I wasn't even, like I wasn't saying that I, I, I just said the words in context. And I felt like, look, I'm going to take care of this. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, this is a setup and I'm reading about the anti-abortion. Right. I'm going to get to this and I'm going to do it a lot better than, yeah. so why don't you just trust me? Did you say that? No, but I'm just thinking. I never believe in stopping for any reason. Really? Not no. to improvise at all? No improvising? No, I never. Because because it's more inherently more interesting than what's on the page. Right. I mean, what's on the page are just words, and you were in a room alone, and you arrange them just this way, and they're, those words are going to be the same tomorrow and the next day and 10 years from now. Right. But if, if you're stopping to confront someone, that's more interesting. Sure. And then trying to get back on the, on, into the story is huh. just too late. It doesn't so you, work. you don't want to upstage yourself? With uh, with yeah. uh, with immediate engagement because that's has a right and you're, that's really kind of like an, I'm in a relationship now whereas like if I just read this this is contextualized here and you can't get back into the story like you, right. I was reading well then I'm doing it all wrong I don't like having my picture <laughs> taken yeah why because then you have to worry about a lot of other things you know what I mean like you have to think like oh what do my teeth look like or what kind of face am I making I don't want to think that. 
And so you'll be reading sometimes, and you look up, and you see someone with a video camera. Yeah. And so I want to stop, and I want to yeah, say, yeah. Like, what are you doing? But yeah. then I might as well just not continue with the story. It, it just continue the riff with the video guy? But you see, mean? like, I mean, the, the, what you do, mm-hmm. and what so many of your guests, and I find that so interesting, is, like, I've, I've never been heckled, because I'm just reading. Yeah. And and this, this never happened to me. And I just, I don't understand people who do heckle yeah uh performers and i don't it would be so so uh make me so angry you know like you've got something you're gonna do and the timing is right there and then just right before you get to it somebody does that and just ruins something you worked so hard on oh yeah they just take a take a shit right in your yard and you just gotta sit there and look at it yeah i i I think that but that's the difference in, in what we do in that um I think specifically for the reason why you avoid that type of interaction is the same reason why people feel comfortable to heckle one way or the other. Because a lot of times hecklers just think like somehow or another they feel like you're speaking directly to them and they'll respond to such. No, I don't think that's that's the way that works. And it's not like they didn't try to sabotage your show. They just had this reaction. And because of the intimacy I create when I do a show, I mean, I, I've had to deal with that. But I'm I, sometimes, like, you don't know what'll happen there. That moment where you engage, it could be amazing. And sometimes it's worth sacrificing the rest of the material. You know, just to, like, if something real happens for me in a moment, like when I do stand-up, that's the best thing that can happen. Uh, you know, me you know, doing a joke I know works again. I, okay well good that works again but hey that as opposed to like i had no idea that i would get into that crap like i had someone heckle me at the book event really yeah the book event just the other day at powell's like i was about to read the baby's piece but see i'm not doing it the same way you do i don't i get up and i tell a story i talk about what you know a lot of these people know me so they expect to you know, the, the intimacy and i'm about to read the baby story and uh, some woman. Then there's two. There's a couple of babies in the audience. There's a, a some some. Uh, you I know. hate it when people bring babies. Well, they she they couldn't get this one was single mom couldn't get a sitter. She emailed me later. She said thank you for being so nice. And then the other one had a kid or whatever. But I bring up the baby thing, and some woman's just sort of like, Ugh, all right, here we go, like with this weird bitterness that clearly just the word babies had triggered some failure of hers or something. And I said, what's, what's the matter? And she's like, I, you know, just do what you're going to do. It's just, I, I don't, and I'm like, what is, what's going on with you? And she's like, I, uh, I don't, you know, d- just go on, go on. And I'm like, uh, are, what, you're saying this relationship's over between us? And, you know, that got a laugh. So I was just riffing and whatever. And, and it went by. And then she asked a question at the end. She's like, oh, do you ever get afraid of the Jewish evil eye? And I'm like, okay, what's happening here? She was this woman that, you know, she ended up waiting around till the end to get her book signed and talk to me. And she, her questions were revolving around, like, do you feel like because you're successful now that uh, some vengeful Jewish God is going to make your life horrible again? And, do you th-? and then she asked me, do you think, uh, do you ever question the authenticity of your Jewishness? And I don't know, it, you know, it became this long thing. But for some reason, I thrive on that. And I just described your biggest nightmare to you. Pretty much, yeah. For that to happen, I mean, they always have a Q and A at the end. Yeah. So that's the time to do that. That's the time. But they, sometimes they want to put microphones in the audience, and I don't like that because there's a certain kind of person who goes up to the microphone. Yeah. And I don't like that person. Why? But who is that person? They want, they want 
you know, they want the microphone, and it's my <laughs> microphone, and they want it. So this way, if somebody, I just prefer to repeat the question. Yeah. Right. Okay. I do it that, that way. Sure. But I like Q and A, and it's the same thing. When you're into it, yeah. You know, it doesn't really matter what the question is. If there's something I want to talk about, I just kind of plug that into it, and it's my little opportunity to, you know, run my mouth about I don't know whatever happened that day or something that I've been working on, a little theory I've been testing. But does it, but is it, doesn't that bring you gratification? Isn't that moment, the improvised moment, uh, as exciting or if not more so than reading something that you know works? Yeah, but it's, I guess it's just not what I'm there for. Oh, I mean, so you're looking at a job responsibility. Well, sometimes mind. sometimes I'll, I'll write down something I talked about on stage and I'll think, wow, that, that, that worked. Maybe I could write that down and have it work. But I don't know. There's something about just it being spoken, certain things. Yeah. You know, they're not stories. They don't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's just something to kind of... Was talk about was it was your moment with somebody on a microphone? Is that based on like did did something happen? I mean, there are there things that have happened uh, in terms of where you're like that guy. We can't have that happen again. Whatever just happened. Well, one time I was at a bookstore event. It was a bookstore event, and I didn't know the bookstore manager had a microphone. Uh huh. And so I'm answering questions, and then she says, "All right, then, if anybody wants a book signed, she cut me off." Right. 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 And and you don't just end the Q&A you don't just look at your watch and end it you end with a certain kind of question you know right. you, you end it it has an ending it doesn't stop and she stopped it rather than me ending it and I was so angry and I most people I'm really angry at have no idea that I'm angry yeah. I wish I could be more diplomatic you know yeah. but I just said to like the assistant manager of the bookstore yeah. I said I hate her and I'm never ever going to talk to her or look her in the eye again <laughs> Ooh, punishment! <laughs> punishment. Yeah, and have you have you held to that promise? No, but bookstore went out of business. It wasn't that hard. It went out of business, and yeah, I felt a little bit responsible for that. Really? But did you feel any satisfaction from that? Oh, complete. <laughs> because she cut me off during my Q and A. But it seems that you have the. You're certain. Uh, it, there's a fine line between, you know, sort of. You know, active and managing. You know, OCD and and being sort of a complete control freak, isn't there? Well. I've, I, I mean, a lot of times, and I, only I mean, say don't that get me wrong, yeah. I, I love a book tour. Yeah. I love going on a book right. tour, you know, I, but sometimes they have a way, that, like I always get to the store a couple hours early, right? Mm -hmm. Like last night, I signed books for eight hours. That's not eight the hours. reading that was sitting on my ass signing books. After? Yeah. So you did it during the day, I'm assuming. We're not talking about Yeah, it was a daytime event. Right. Sometimes it's a night event, but I did it during the day. But I got there I got there late. So I got there an hour early. Yeah. And then I did carried on for forty five minutes and then for seven hours and fifteen or eight out seven hours after that I signed more books. Uh huh. So Oh my god. And it was a great bookstore. Do you do it what's your name? Do you put their name and you know, or do you just Oh yeah, I know I love it. I just, I I mean I tried someone gave me a book of stickers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'd never seen them in a book like that. It was like a big, thick paperback book full of stickers. Yeah. So I worked with that all night. Like there was a sticker of a log, right? Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> my publicist was there and she heard me saying to people, do you have a blog? Yeah. And so eventually I met someone who had a blog. Yeah. And so then I wrote A and then I wrote a B and then yeah. I put the log in their book. Yeah. Right. So blogger and then I wrote ER. Yeah. You know, a blogger in I, California. You know, just I get it. Silly stuff like that. Yeah. I, I, I just completely enjoy it. Completely yeah. enjoy it. Do and you, I'm always looking for things to sign in books. 
Yeah, do you talk to people? I oh, mean, completely. I talk to them so much that they they look at their watches and. They, Oh, so you're like, like okay, I gotta, I gotta go. They're, and, they're like, I gotta go, right? Because right. I would n- never. I was doing an event a while ago, and somebody kind of swooped in, yeah. And I didn't ask them to, and right. they swooped in, and they started taking books out of people's hands and putting them in front of me, and then handing the books back, and then saying, "Thank you for coming." But I just asked that person yeah. a question. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Right, like, right, right. When was the last time you had chicken salad? <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. And I would die if I was that person. Right, you feel you feel rushed. rude by proximity. Yeah. That, yeah, that happened to me a little night the other night where they were rushing people along, and I'm like, it's okay. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't. Who's that for? Yeah, but I, they think they're helping you out because they they what happens is is they get into a series of writers that come who are bogged down or not sociable, and they you know they've had to manage this line because they've had some whiny prima donna writer, so it's not had nothing to do with you. They think they're helping you out. Well, it used to be that I would not be able to do anything about that, and I would just feel helpless. It took me a long time to be able to say, well, actually, I didn't handle this very well. I should have said, that is so kind of you, but I really don't need the help right now. Instead, I just let it go on, and then I started getting really angry at myself, and then I said, I think you should go home now. (laughs) Like that. So the fight had been going on in your mind for a while. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That relationship had, had started... When she did that, or he did yeah. that, huh? But some, but now, I mean, I've been doing this long enough that I go into the bookstore. Like sometimes I'll get there, you know, I'll get there two hours early if I'm on time, yeah. and then they'll say, "Well, we'll bring you into the back," and it's like, no, I, there would be nothing for me to do back there. I'm, I came here to start signing books for people who are already here. So sometimes you just have to say to people, you know, really trust trust me on this, and and this is this is a way it, this is a way I think we can do this it will keep me the happiest yeah they always think they're they're deferring to, they just want to treat the celebrity with as much respect as possible and sometimes like i'll go out into the room i don't you know i like that well I, when I, mean, I when i first moved to new york i went and saw wallace sean he did um it wasn't the fever what was it it was a one-man that. show that, that wallace sean was doing yeah he was doing it la mama yeah and i just moved to new york and right. i went and there was wallace sean shaking everybody's hand as i walked into the theater and I thought, that is so smart. Because when the show started, I thought, I know him. Or at right. least I'd met him. I would have forgiven him anything. Because he shook my hand. Yeah. Before the, I mean, some people I understand, they're like mysterious. And sure, they're going to come sure. out on stage. And yeah. they're going to disappear. And it's best for everybody right, that way. Right. But, I mean, for, for me, it's not, it's not necessary. So I, I like being out there beforehand and meeting people who are in the audience and seeing who's going to... Uh, you know, when I do a theater show, yeah. I sign books beforehand sure. too because yeah. I just want to. I just want to see who's in the house and oh, yeah. I just want to talk to them. Do you ever have that moment where you're like, oh, "That guy looks like he might be a problem"? I try to keep it dark. You know, keep keep the <laughs> lights dark so I don't see anything. See anything. But like a few weeks ago, I was at a college, and the lights didn't get as dim as I wanted them to be, yeah. so I could see the first four rows. And yeah. I said. I said I was doing the sound check, and I said, "Oh, I see. There's a seat reserved for the dean, right?" And so. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the dean's going to be here. So I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to curse. I'm not going to curse sure. in front of the dean. Yeah. And and the dean hated me. Like, the whole time, the dean's, like, looking at his watch. And, and so I'm just focused on him. Yeah. I'm not focused on the people who are having a good time. Yeah. And I wasted the whole evening. If the dean didn't like me anyway, but, then I might as well have... have um, 
perform for the rest of the people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, but, but are you making assumptions? I mean, the guy looking at his watch, was he like, was he like exasperated? Or? He would look like the way I look like in London Yeah. when I'm waiting for a bus yeah. and then I'm waiting for the 49 bus sure. and three 49s go together in a herd on the other side of the street, right. you know, like, like just... Uh, it's gonna take furious, and now right. it's going to take forever. That's what he looked like, <laughs> the dean. The, the fact that you're you're already censoring yourself because the dean, like, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> Who is that guy? That's crazy. <laughs> I thought, well, I'll be respectful for the dean. Yeah, you know, well, yeah, I'm in a college. He seems to be in charge here. He's the warden. But uh, well, La Mama. See, I think. Wh when did you get to New York? 1990. Because I was there in 89 through 91, and then I went back in like 94 or so. And I think that that world of, uh, you know, the excitement of that place, what what exactly was that place? Because I don't remember ever actually going there, but I know you worked with them a lot. And it seems like that type of theater is not, not as vital as it once was, like almost anything in New York. Yeah, the place that we had, maybe it was like a 200-seat uh -huh. black box theater. Right. It was La Mama ETC, okay. right? And so I did something there. And then Amy and I did a play there, and then they then they just said, "This is whatever you want to do, anything you just tell us." And then it just became kind of our clubhouse, and it was fantastic. And uh -huh. you could only because of the, there's a nonprofit place, it, shows could only run for so long. I think they were only allowed to run for like three weeks, but, right? But they would extend us and extend, and then say, "Oh, you know, the place is going to be empty in August. Why don't you, why don't you, you can have August too." And so it was. It was uh, just what we'd hoped for, you know, just a little place where you could work stuff out. Yeah, and it had a, it had a reputation, it had a name. It was sort of like a, even if it wasn't the main theater, there was a, a cutting edge element to uh, to La Mama as a brand at that time, right? Yeah, I and mean, then the stuff that they were doing was a lot more. We we were we were we were just doing silly shows. But know? when you say silly, I mean it's still theater. I mean, how do you like? I mean, you were writing plays. Right, you saw them as plays. They yeah, but to me, I guess I would think of. Uh, I mean, I I wouldn't. You know, there are people who I would think of as a playwright. I right. mean, and, and and if I would, I would be embarrassed to call myself that in front of them. You know what I mean? Even now. Oh yeah, I mean they're like. These were take my word for it. They were like, silly shows. Yeah, and there's no. nothing wrong with the like silly one woman shoe. Yeah. And what were the other ones? There was one called uh, the last one we called. We we had one called the Le Le the Little Freedom Mysteries. Oh yeah, that was big though, right? That Amy was you know really shined in that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And then the last one was the Book of Liz. Yeah, was the last one we did. And oh, we did one at Lincoln Center. We were invited to the Lincoln Center Festival one year, so we did one called Incident at Cobbler's Knob. <laughs> and they were they were we would get together, right? And then have a script, and then read through the script. Who and, would write it? You and Amy? Yeah. Uh huh. And then panic, and just think, "Wow, that's awful. Yeah. That is just awful." Because yeah. you're just written over a bong. Yeah. You know, yeah, just yeah. completely written over a bong. <laughs> and and then we would say, "Okay, we open in three weeks." Yeah. So it was really a collaborative effort. You know, right. I mean, everybody, everybody. Because, look, you got Jackie Hoffman in her yeah, show. sure. You know, Jackie Hoffman, if she can come up with something better... Let her do it. ...on her feet yeah. than what I spent all night, a line I spent all night on, let's go with Jackie's line. Because otherwise, what, yeah. does it, what does it get you? Right, you right, know, right. To, to, be, to be the bully that way. Right. Not the bully, but you know what I mean. Just control. To be the control freak yeah. that way. 
So uh, it was really, it was really uh, like a kind of a Christopher Guest kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, everybody collaborative. Yeah, yeah. And w- when you started working with Amy, when did that really start to? When did you guys really start to do that? I mean, how did you know you were gonna? I mean, I know you grew up with her; she's your sister and everything. We did something in Chicago. I moved to Chicago in 1984. And was she at Second City or? or no, they, she was she living was, in Raleigh. Okay. And then I went to Second City and then I wrote to her and said, you should come here and look at this place, Second City. So she came and then she, she moved to Chicago. You were part of it, the Second City? Nope. You mm-hmm. just went to look at it? Yeah, I just went to and look at it. And you thought she would dig it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because she was just living in Raleigh and she was just... I, I don't think a person like that would have stayed in Raleigh for the rest of her life. But she could have got She just stuck. needed a little nudge, right, I think. Right, right. And, and then she and I did something in Chicago at a place one time after she had lived there for a few years. It was just a little, it was just like the, the like a germ of a little silly show. And what were you we doing? Did. Were you, were you, what were you doing at the time? Were you, you were I writing? To, I went to art school. I went to the Art Institute of Chicago. To study what? Painting and sculpture. And then, but I was writing when I got there. And then after I was there for a while, I looked around me and I thought, these are you know, I saw people who were like really talented and I thought, I don't have their talent. It's not just that I didn't have their talent. I didn't care the way that they cared. But you could know? you imagine dedicating your life to sculpture? I mean, seriously. I mean, like, I mean, painting even. I mean, painting, at least there's some romantic notion that you may be able to tap into something that might resonate with a large group of people. But I never really understood how someone could be like, I'm just going to work with wire. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I would do... What I my thing was I took wind up toys apart, yeah, and then I encased the motors in wood, yeah, and I made models of human hearts, and then you would wind them up, and where before it would be a panda playing a drum, yeah, now it was just it would just sort of flop. It was like a bird that had hit the window and was just sort of flopping around, on the flying, gr- flopping around the ground, and it wasn't rhythmic, and it was just yeah. it was just painful to look at. <laughs> And so that's what I was making. So it wasn't like just with wire. I was, you know, yeah, using, using some that. balsa wood and some. But, but at some point, were you looking at one of these things flopping around going like, this is it. This well, is, I mean, this is what I can do. I, I think, well, I'd been writing, but no one ever saw anything sure, that I wrote. Yeah, and, right. then, and then I read something in class one day. Yeah. In a sculpture class, it was mm-hmm. part of my piece, and I don't know. People laughed, and I thought that feels better than anything I've ever done. What was the piece? So, how did that work? It wasn't a heart. It was what, what? no. For in, in art school, you have these critiques, sure, and so you put your work up and you talk about it. Yeah, and people would talk like, but they would talk as if they were talking to a therapist. Yeah, you know, <laughs> right. And and so I just wrote a little thing. It was a it was a little monologue about why my paintings weren't better. Right. And it was just blaming everyone in my life. You know, yeah. just a character's life. Yeah. And and it was short yeah. and people laughed. It killed, and, huh? Yeah, it did. And I thought <laughs> you know, I mean I'd said and it just felt great. So you were there with a the piece of paper next to your painting and you're like Yeah. You were able to sort of go back and forth in that moment, maybe not consciously, but to realize like, you know, this just resonated immediately. Immediately. That people can't even understand what's up here on the wall and I'm not sure I do. Or or, you know, you're not there for it. I think that's the difference. Uh-huh. Like, if you do a funny painting, you're yeah. not there for it. So it might be in the gallery or something, and people might laugh, but you're not getting that response. And then I realized, now, now if I have something published in The New Yorker, I'm not getting that response either. I don't know if someone's at home and they're getting it, and sure. I don't know what noise they're making. But, yeah. but when I go on tour, I like to be on stage, and I like to hear that. 
And so, I, don't, I, don't, I always feel like, well, maybe the better person doesn't need to hear it. Right, right. But, so that was just something you had to rise above. That, that well, I mean, you know, you're writing these things and you know, I mean, I can't imagine that you write something for the New Yorker and just say like, you know, no, nah, I feel okay about it. And you wait until you can finally read it in front of people to go like, yeah, it was good. It was good. Well, like I'm closing something with them now, right? Uh -huh, so yeah. that means like today, like I was in the back of a car and they're sending me little changes and stuff. And yeah. so I added three lines. Yeah. And I read this story when I was on my, the lecture part of the tour that I'm on right now, I probably read the story like 35 times, mm -hmm. but I didn't have a chance to read those three new lines. So I'm kind of nervous about that because yeah. I don't know, what if I read those three lines out loud and then they don't feel right or, yeah. or, or I, I would have preferred to have done it the other way, but what can you do? At least it's only three lines and it's not a whole story. But you workshop stuff like that, right? I mean, I've been yeah. told mm -hmm. that you, so like in my mind, you you strike me as somebody who is a, like a performer at heart that, you know, like even though you're writing funny stuff and when you read them publicly to see if the laugh is where you want it to be, I mean, that's a, that's a comedian's game in a way. I'm not sure that a lot of people work like that. Right. And I love reading it out loud. Yeah. I love it. But you know, but you've actually, you know, you've taken notes and said like, well, I got to, you know, this joke is one beat off. Like yeah. the, like the stuff you read from, from my book, you know, two of those, or maybe at least the one where she took her vagina and left was, <laughs> that was a beat. I mean, I did that on stage. I know that beat. You know, uh, the other one, uh, my my dick cried. My, my my that wasn't. But I mean, you can't lose with a crying dick. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I'm sort of fascinated with the idea that that structurally, you, you know, you'll determine things comedic their comedic uh, poignancy on on reading them out loud before they're published. How often do you get an opportunity to do that? Do you actually tour with all new material ever? Yeah, I mean, I always try to. But the, a couple of things that I put in the in the book, the new book, they, I wrote them at the kind of the last minute, and so yeah. I went to Boston for a week, yeah. and I was just in a smaller theater than I would normally be in, right? And it was billed as a work in progress, and then I went to Denver for a week, and so again, they were they, it was billed as a as a work in progress, and so I worked on stories, I kind of pounded on them. So that's great. I mean, because but that's uh, so that you know that kind of puts you in. Like outside of the the uh, you know, the writing world, I mean that's a that's a really a performance artist game. I mean, in a way that, mm -hmm. like Spalding Gray comes to mind. Um, you know, I, I'd go see him and I'd see Bogosian sometimes when I was living in New York, and they would be workshopping stuff. And then you know you could see it two or three times, and by the time it's the final thing is done, it's like what happened to that guy that you were doing, or where's that whole chunk on that? It's gone. Did you ever meet Spalding Gray? No, I didn't. I wish I did. I talked to his widow recently. It was kind of a weird... Why did I talk to her? Was it an email thing? She's a lecture agent, I think. Right, yeah, but she saw me somewhere, you know, because I had done a, a bit on um, on my last album about him that that I was in New York and I was in an elevator and, and I saw somebody that looked exactly like Spalding Gray. And my first thought was like, you pulled it off. <laughs> <laughs> Secret's good with me. I'm not going to tell anyone. Looking forward to the show. You know, and uh, and I told her that, you know, because I was sort of nervous because, you know, when she, I can't remember what the interaction was. I get bogged down with stuff. And she says, I thought that for weeks. Hmm. Like she really didn't. It was hard for her to believe as well. Did you meet him? I met him a couple times, but just, you know, be like it at uh, Aspen, uh -huh. you know, or, or that, probably that same year or right? in New York. Mm -hmm. But every time I met him, he would be, he would 
he would say something and I thought, how many times today did you say that? Like, yeah. like I could get the idea that he was working on something. Right, right, right. And I, I do that sometimes and I don't like that about myself. You know, you try you know a how, joke a couple times. Or, you know, when you're with somebody and yeah. you just kind of, you're, all of a sudden you realize you're not really connected, connecting to that person. Yeah, you're yeah, just yeah. kind of performing, performing in front of that person. Right. I hate I hate it when I do that because you feel kind of beside yourself in a way, or you feel kind of. I mean, I I know the feeling, and I don't know why it happens necessarily. I don't do it that often. It happens on tour a lot because you're just back to me in, any, because, with a bookstore owner or something, or yeah, something yeah, or in somebody's passing. drive. You know, somebody's driving you from place to place. Yeah, I always wonder what's the what's the better thing to do there. Do I just not say anything? I've had a lot of those lately where I get in and I'm a little aggravated, and there's a driver there, and he starts, and I'm like, I can't do the interview right now. I can't be interviewed right now by you. Well, I usually try to mm-hmm. do it the other way. What I was always surprised about, though, is a number of... Because I never learned to drive a car, so... To this day? Yeah, so I'm driven around quite often, you know, when I'm on tour. Why didn't you learn how to drive a car? I mean... I never... I... I How'd you avoid that? You lived in I the South. I got a driver's license. I mean, I got a permit. Yeah. And then I hit a mailbox, and I thought, that's it. The next time I hit something, it's going to be a child. Oh yeah, okay. You wrote about that, didn't you? So I'm never, yeah. never, ever going to do it again. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, How do you manage all the uh, fear uh, that you have of little things? I mean, I ride a bike. You ride a bike. I'm not afraid of. Get, I'm not afraid how much of pain bike riding. You, yeah. How much pain could you cause if you hit a guy on a bike? But you drive. I do. I've been dri- driving a long time. Yeah, I mean, I drive in Albuquerque. You get your license when you were. When I was growing up, you were like 15, and there you were in a car. And I wrecked a couple, but I didn't kill anybody. I didn't, you know, I, I mean, I, I do think about that more lately. I, th- I have a tr- profound fear of it right now for some reason, that someone's going to step in front of my car, or that there's a moment that you can have in your life that's completely out of your control, that's accidental, that'll change everything, everything, just like that, you know? That stuff scares me. The worst would be if you were if you were drunk, though. Horrible. Well, I don't yeah. drink anymore, so that's gone. So that's not going to happen. Just be stupid. I'd be texting somebody. Oh, but the drivers. Yeah. It's just interesting to me how many of them will say, "Oh no, you know, I had I was working in the, you know, the software industry, and I just oh, yeah, realized yeah. one day, you know, that I just wasn't smelling the flowers." And it's like, really? So you decided instead. To drive someone to the airport at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I just l- love the number of times you. Yeah, I don't mind that so much. Like, it's a lot easier for me to be in that position. Like, I feel bad when I don't feel like talking. But mm-hmm. a lot of times, maybe it's because I do this. I don't know why. But a couple recently, some dude told me, like, you know, why he was driving was because his wife of 35 years just said she didn't love him anymore and she was leaving. And she was the breadwinner in the family, so now he's going to lose, you know, part of his income, and he doesn't know how to explain it to his kids. He was hanging on to hope that maybe they could work it out, and they went to a therapist. But then he found out that it was really a divorce counseling therapist. It was a therapist to help people leave the other person, and like, and now he's just doing this because you know his whole business is gone. He doesn't know what the hell he's going to do. And it was this heartbreaking thing, you know. But being divorced myself, I could kind of chime in. And, you know, sympathetically a couple times. And then at the end, I felt like we should hug, that there was crying necessary. It was very bizarre. And then there was another guy, uh, you know, where you get these, like that, life stories. But yeah, like, you know, how do you end up, you know, you, like a lot of them are sort of like, well, now I can you know, make my own hours. 
You know, I don't have that much responsibility. It's not my car. Another guy who drove who drove me in New York, he was like, he, his wife had died of cancer. And it was almost like, it seemed like his driving was just actively running away from something. You know, like it was, it was brutal. But I had a guy one morning and he said, you know, he said, I had Garrison Keeler in my car. Yeah. He gave me a hundred dollar tip for a ride to the airport. And I thought, okay, he he told me it was five o'clock in the morning. Okay, so maybe Garrison Keeler thought it was a ten dollar bill or a twenty dollar bill, uh-huh. but that's not fair. Like right. to tell me right. that somebody so yeah. you're going to make me feel cheap right. if I give you right. anything less than a hundred dollars yeah, for a ride to the airport. You're a pretty big writer guy. Where's my? Uh, what do you got? And what then I you? had another guy, and he yeah. was saying uh, he was he was a uh, Palestinian, mm-hmm. and he lived in Austin, Texas, and he had a rental property. Mm-hmm. And I said, I have a rental property too. I said, what's your tenant like? So he told me, and I told him what my tenant like. He said, where's yours? And I said, it's in Paris. I said, it's just a little studio. We rent it out. Right. We have this woman who's been living there. She's great. He drops me off at the airport. I go through security, and I hear my name. Yeah. Well, David Sedaris pick up the white courtesy phone, and it's him. Yeah. And he says, would you ever sell me that rental property in Paris? And I said, well, I said, you know, we're pretty happy with it. Yeah. And he says, let me just give you my number in case you change your mind. <laughs> and then I said, okay, great. And then he said, read it back to me. And of course, I hadn't written his number down. And I said, I'm so glad you said that because I can't read my handwriting because <laughs> I got my satchel in one hand. Uh-huh. Give it to me one more time. <laughs> yeah. Did he? Yeah, he gave Did it you to write me it one down? more time. And I wrote it down because I was afraid he was going to ask me again <laughs> to read it out loud to him. What is, that's an afterthought. The guy like pulled over, or he called yeah. you. Pulled over. He had to call you. Yeah, call the airport. Yeah. What do you What do you think the urgency was? I know it. It's bizarre. So that, that was the, was that the house you lived in when you lived in Paris? No, no. We bought. Uh, we got a little apartment for my boyfriend here. We got an apartment for his mother, and then this little studio next to her opened up, and so we bought it so we could just. Eventually, when we sell it, we could sell the whole floor. Uh-huh. And so we just inherited a tenant, and she's great. Now, when you go, see, being an expatriate, would you call yourself that? Mm. I don't. I don't like that word. I think it's kind of a romantic word. Sure. Um, so no, I mean, it makes it sound like I, I was. I wasn't mad at the United States when I left. No, no, expatriate. Bill Clinton yeah. was president. Yeah. I was fine with that. But yeah. I uh, we were going to be gone for a year, and yeah. one turned into two, and you know now I have in in the UK I have my green card, yeah, and I can get my passport whenever I want. In the UK, uh-huh. but you can, but you always remain an American citizen. So now you're you're you're, well, you're a citizen be- in both places. You can have an American passport or a British passport. Is that the way? Well, you works? can have both in England. Like in Germany, it's really hard to have two passports. In some countries, it's hard to have two. But in England, yeah, you can have two. Did you do research in Germany? Did you want to live there? I'd love to move to Germany. Why? I love Germany. I don't know anything about it. You know, it's odd. As I get older, I really like places where people follow the rules. Yeah. And, and so as I long like as the rules are Japan. okay. You're I like Japan. <laughs> what does that mean? I like Japan. Well, like people stand on one side of the escalator. Yeah. You know, and they stand in line to get on the subway, and they don't just charge on there when the doors are open they don't put their feet up on the seats so, you, so everything's just chaos to you as you get older it's like this is, yeah yeah it's crazy it's just no no there's no respect or order here yeah so new york must be just exhausting for you yeah it is <laughs> it is now <laughs> well, I, I mean I'll, I'll move for any reason i mean i'm not one of those people that i love moving yeah i love everything about it really? i love packing the boxes i like labeling them really Mm-hmm. There's no part of you that thinks like, oh my God, 
I mean, it's not that hard. No, it's not hard. To that take causes stuff me off the a shelf. tremendous amount of anxiety. Really, tremendous. Like it's paralyzing. Like in my mind, if I didn't have this girlfriend, I, I wouldn't leave this place. I'd die here. I why? Why would I go anywhere? I don't need more than the room. I don't. How much do I need? It's like terrifying to me. Yet you won't get behind the wheel of a car, and I can't leave my garage. These are different things. But I don't wonder if they're somewhere somehow. Why do you like moving? It's exciting. I mean, I like moving to. I like it moving to another country too, oh. because then, like a couple of years ago. Uh, I decided to quit smoking, right? So How's that going? You know, I smoked for 30 years, yeah. and I smoked a lot, and I wanted to quit, and I decided, let's say in November, I decided to quit, so I moved to Tokyo. Yeah. And so I went to Tokyo, and I rented an apartment in Tokyo for three months, and my boyfriend went with me, and I went to Japanese school when I yeah. got to Tokyo, and... You know, if I just decided at home I'm going to quit smoking and then I would sit at my desk the next morning and I would think, oh, this is ridiculous. Give me that cigarette. Yeah. But I was in a whole new apartment. I was yeah. in a whole other language. I it was a whole new me. Mm-hmm. It was like we said. It was like running away work. So yeah. I went and I quit smoking and I haven't had a cigarette. In, I don't know. It's been like six years now and I don't even think about it. That's amazing. Because I, st- I eat nicotine lozenges constantly. Really? I haven't smoked in like 10 years. Are you on any other medicine? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I don't have to take anything. I, I brought all these lozenges with me when I went over there in patches, but I didn't use any of them. It just went. You were done. Yeah. You were done. I told myself that were when you... I was born, I was allotted a certain number of cigarettes mm-hmm. and that I smoked them all. If I'd smoked more slowly, I would yeah. still be doing it. You just but I smoked all my cigarettes and and I took all my drugs too. Yeah. All my drugs I took. They're done. Yeah, I can't have any more. Yeah. Other people, you know, they haven't even touched their allotment yet. How do you know what your allotment is? Do you just know when you're done? Yeah. There wasn't a number on it. You were just, you knew when you were done. You just hit your limit. Yeah. And if you'd gone one over, you'd be like, oh, this is horrendous. Right. Then it would have been a huge, then then I would have had it like a hangover for the rest of my life, I think. If you'd done one more. Yeah. Huh. But yeah, I think it helps to have some kind of little story, don't you? I guess. I mean, like, for me, it's just sort of like, oh, what is that pain? You know, is that going to go away? Did I go too far? You know, like, I don't don't have a narrative around that other than, like, you get to a point with the cigarettes where I'm like, this is stupid. I'm too old for this shit. I can't breathe. It becomes impossible to rationalize the pleasure of them when you can't breathe. Well, I did. Only reason I quit was because all the good hotels went non-smoking. Yeah. And if someone else is paying for your room, yeah, and you're at the Amerisuites, yeah, five miles outside of town, yeah, instead of being at the Four Seasons in town, yeah, I yeah. have a problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why I quit. You know, like you wrote in your book, yeah. you'd mentioned making your own waffles at the hotel. The best. And I thought, oh my God, what kind of place is they putting him? Yeah. <laughs> Those are places where there are like seven billboards on the desk when you walk in. Those mm-hmm. fold-up things, mm-hmm. advertising. Uh-huh. Oh, um, and I—I I don't know. I don't want. You know, it, I didn't mean for it to happen, but yeah. I became like hotels started mattering to me. Well, yeah, they matter to me too, but for different reasons. I, you know, I don't like. I still have part of me where I, where, where you look at the like I was recently put up at the London in New York. And I was given a per diem, which to me is a big deal. You know, like that they trust you enough not to be the guy that's sort of like, ah, 
get it. You know, like when they give me a per diem to eat, and they, I brought my girlfriend with me. And and even then, when we ordered room service, when we just wanted coffee and maybe a bagel for breakfast, and then I'm signing a thing for $50, I'm like, this is fucking ridiculous. And it's not even my money. But I'm like, that's it's unjust. It, it doesn't make sense. They should be ashamed of themselves. So then I started sort of calculating a way to spend all this money on one big, beautiful dinner. Why waste it on bagels when we could just go outside? So I have a weird thing with that. And with the buffet thing, for me, like if I'm on the road, it's, if I can have a hotel where I can wake up before 10 and all that stuff's just out there, I have the, I, I love buffets, even if they're shitty. Just the idea that I can just linger and like, you know, maybe I will have some cereal <laughs> and then sit there for a little longer. It's like, well, that oatmeal doesn't look good, but it's right there. It's free and, and they have the frozen berries. Why not? I like that. The London just has those little ironing boards. Ironing boards? I didn't even look for one. Yeah, they just have little ones. I yeah. need a big ironing board. So that's a that's a deal breaker with you. That's in the writer. Well, it's a, it's a consideration for me. I mean, yeah. sometimes you go to a hotel and it's a nice hotel, but they don't have it's not it's not a hotel for me you well, know like how about power strips i mean do you ever go to a hotel there's not enough plugs oh all the time yeah that, what really is, how can't they get that shit together i don't i don't understand that at all some people i've spoken to bring their own power strips <laughs> it's genius it's funny thing to pack i mean like i haven't done it yet but it's only a matter of time so all right your sister is doing well uh-huh I saw her, she was doing my show not too long ago, the live one. I love her, always loved her. The other, the brother, Paul, is he doing all right? Yeah, I finished this tour and then I rented a house on the coast in North Carolina. Yeah. So I'm going to go there with my family for a week. Who's, That'll be nice. With with the two sisters and your brother? I have four sisters four? and a brother. And then my brother has a daughter and... And your dad's still around? Yeah, my dad's 90. 90? 90 years old. Do you feel good about it? You know, he he's never forgotten anyone's name. He drives. He does his own cooking. Yeah. He's he's 90. Yeah. But he he's uh and he lives by himself. You yeah. know, my mom died and he never remarried. And you know, it's uh you know, he's the same. He's kind of like, you know, become saturated. You know, I mean like become more of himself. Uh-huh. As as he gets older. Yeah, the all the uh, the uh, the fronts diminish in a way, or they, they, they there's a vulnerability to getting older, I guess that that wasn't there necessarily before. Well, you know, my dad was always a Republican, but he it was just about money. Yeah, and so now you know he listens to Rush Limbaugh and yeah. he watches Fox News, and then he started feeling like maybe he wasn't conservative enough. Enough? I thought yeah, you were going to so go the other way. He started rethinking a couple of issues. Mm. You know, which ones? Oh, like abortion yeah. and gay rights and... Gay rights. Like in North Carolina, they had that Amendment 1. And Amendment 1, like gay marriage was illegal. And yeah. the Amendment 1 made it super extra special, extra illegal. My, my fa- Unconstitutional. Right. My father could not wait to tell me he voted for it. Couldn't wait. Knowing that you're gay. Yeah, yeah. And I said, why would you vote for that? Yeah. And he said, well, you got these, some girls go to college and they don't, don't even know. And it's like, are you talking about college lesbians? Like who, who put this in your head? Because he listens to his crackpot radio. And yeah. so I guess it made sense at the time. You know, he heard something that made what sense What was he talking him. about? College lesbians. What does that mean? You know, like girls go off to college and sometimes they experiment, they experiment oh. and stuff. I don't know why. So I guess he maybe. 
he's worried that they're going to just decide to get married and then wake up yeah. in graduate school and decide they're not really lesbians. Yeah. Well, so what? Yeah. They just get a divorce and marry guys. <laughs> so, but do you think it was specifically to bait you? Mm, maybe, but then he just he got very frustrated when I tried to argue with him, and yeah. he just that you know he just said, "I don't have to explain myself to you." So normally we don't talk about things like that, you know, because there's really there's not there's not any point. I'm not going to change his mind, and it just makes me sad to think because I always thought when I mean, growing up I just thought that that's once you got old like that you became conservative. But like Hugh, my boyfriend, his parents weren't like that, and when we lived in France. The people across the road from us in Normandy yeah. were my dad's age, and they were communists. Yeah. Okay, communists. Well, that was, it's a little easier to do that in Europe. I mean, it doesn't have the same stigma uh, uh, collectively as it does in America, you know, being communists. I had a great aunt and uncle who were American communists. They had money. I think it's easier to be a communist when you have money. But, you know, they fought, you know, they used to entertain Angela Davis at their house, and they were part of all the the causes in the late 60s and early 70s and what they identified as communists. I did, I never knew it until we used to always go to their house, my father's aunt and uncle, and we'd go to their house and they'd show us slides from uh, from their trips. And it, and it wasn't until years later that I remembered that, you know, I think we saw slides from Russia, Cuba, China, oh, wow. that, like, that all, you know, it was like, wow, these are great places, but they were all communist countries and I, and I never put it together. But I, But do you find... I mean, you the way you write about your father is he's still somewhat endearing. Uh, you, you know, do, do you feel that, I guess, it, what, what I want to know, given the way I write, uh, and I'm not really a writer, but given the way you write, it, that you seem to, to write a line uh, where you don't seem to get into darkness that you can't get out of. Mm. Gosh, that's a nice way to put it. I, I mean... You know, I mean, everybody's got. I, I, I'm. I remember reading this book once, and this guy was writing about his family, and yeah. he wrote that he went through his father's, his parents' bedside table, and yeah. he found a dildo and a copy of Shaved Asian. Uh-huh. And I thought, wow, like, I, I mean, that was really interesting to me, and it explained a lot. But I would never write that because yeah. there's stuff. You know, my dad has a right to keep certain things private. Yeah. You know, so I would never. I, I, I just even my mother's been dead for 20 years but there are things that I would not write about her just because I know she wouldn't want the world knowing those things so, so there's still a respect there you're not you're not you don't have an axe to grind no no I mean I'm really grateful that I had my dad that I had the, exactly the dad that I had that exactly the same the one that I had because you know I just kind of worked against him my whole life it's what got me out of bed every day and if you know, if I'd had a, you know, someone who was like my champion and stuff, it would just, it, I can't imagine what well, you, kind of a you, you worthless drug addict I'd be today. Be a waiter. Maybe, probably. yeah. Yeah, with his <laughs> blessings, you know? <laughs> yeah, because I am dealing with that now. My, I think I destroyed my relationship with my father because of that book and the TV show. But, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't take into mind, you know, the, the in my mind, like, I don't know where... Like, okay, so you say you're happy that you had the father that you had and because you wouldn't have turned out differently. But there, there's still, you know, you make a decision about what elements of his life are part of your life. And that, you know, I guess that gratitude is probably what separates us in, in, in terms of how I approach it because I think that my father's, you know, secrets or his sickness 
is directly responsible for a lot of the things that I fight in myself. So I made a choice to put that stuff in there. And I, I, and I don't know what's going to happen in the long run with our relationship, but you know, I was willing to roll the dice on that. Well, I wrote something years ago, uh, like, I don't know, 12 years ago, about my grandmother, mm. right? And my dad was mad about that. He's never been mad about anything I've said about him, but he was mad about that. And I think he was just ashamed because my, he had to put my grandmother in a nursing home. And Greeks don't really do that. They don't want, they don't want to do oh, that. Oh, yeah, I know that story. But, yeah. but he was forced into it. Right. I mean, my mother said either she goes or I go. And right. My dad was in a tough position. And I right. thought that I put that in the story. Right. But I think he just didn't want to even be reminded right. of it. Right. He so that's see. the only thing yeah. he's ever gotten angry about. But I think, you know, I think if if an outsider were to read the story, they would they would think like, oh, the guy was in a bind right. instead of what right. a heartless person he is. Yeah, no, I didn't get that from that story. But like, they can't see that because they, they probably are only carrying the shame. So they're only going to see through that lens of the shame of what they felt for having to do that. Right. They weren't going to say like, oh yeah, that was the most, that was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. But my son seems to have framed it properly that other people are not going to see it that way. But I think, like, <laughs> I, I met somebody, I have a friend who's a writer and she had written just a little bit about her family and I met her sister recently and, yeah. I, and, I, and, I, and I felt like saying, oh, I know, I know, I know you. But it's like, no, I know that her dad made a cannon and I know that she has a baby. That's all I really know about her. But- People have the idea that they know, right? So, right. so my sister Lisa will go to a dinner party, and someone yeah. will say, "I've read all about you. You, yeah. you know, I know everything about you." And they don't. They know she has a parrot. Yeah. But it can be hard for her, right? You know that kind of that that can be hard for her to hear. Sure. And so I, I have, you know, I have to hear that. I have to understand that. I. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lesson I'm I'm gonna probably learn the hard way. You know, given uh, you know if I'm gonna write more. Yeah, that's a it's a it's a I think it's a very uh, reasonable position to have. Well, like so, I that story that I closed to the New Yorker, right? So the New Yorker fact checks everything, right? yeah. every every word. So my sister Gretchen in this story, we were, she came for Christmas, and I'm quoting her as in my house at Christmas. You know, she's like fifty three now, and she had said it used to be that whenever I passed a mirror, I would look at my face. Now I just check to see that my nipples are lined up. Okay, so <laughs> she said that. Yeah. So the fact checker called, and then, and then the only, and then Gretchen called me back and said, you know, the, you know, I read the story and everything. She said, but I don't think my aquarium was heated back then because I said she had a heated aquarium. That was her only thing that that right, right. that she didn't re- really recall if her aquarium was heated. That yeah. was. That was her beef with that story. Right, right. But she knows that that line's funny. And when I read that line in the theater, and there are 2,000 people laughing at it, that's a laugh for her. That's not a laugh at her. Right, She knows that's funny. Sure, sure. And and she doesn't, if she wanted to be the one on stage with the microphone, it might be a problem. But she doesn't want to be the one on stage with the microphone. She doesn't mind me telling the world that she's a funny, that she's a funny person. But you don't, do you ever feel like, um, you know, challenged to, you, you know, obviously you've evolved as a writer and, you know, you, you, you mix it up now, you know, you, you've only got so much of your family to draw from after a certain point. But I mean, do you ever feel like you gave, you, you were too easy on somebody or that you weren't, or there that you aren't getting out something that you want to get out? I mean, is there a, an anger or a darkness in there that you 
would do or, 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 or feel like you haven't been able to service? Um, sure. I mean, but at the same time, uh, you know, like I've never read, written anything really about, let's say, a, you know, somebody who I used to go out with, yeah. you know, because uh, do I want them doing that, writing all that about me? Pro- probably not. You know? Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, if they changed my name, I have to say, if they changed my name, I, I honestly don't think I would care because I just wouldn't read it. Right. I mean, I don't... Even if you knew it was you. I don't read anything connected with me. What is there? I mean, oh, you mean reviews or I anything? I read reviews or... Really? Or Nothing? Interviews or... Uh, or... No. No. Do you? I Only if they're put in front of me. I don't Google search myself. I don't like... But for some reason, whatever I'm obsessed with, which is, you know, Twitter right now, you know, if somebody sticks something in my face, like, you know, what do you think of this article? You know, I'll go read it, but I'm trying to find some some room. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this for the first time, really, because I have a book out there and I have a TV show out there, so now this stuff's coming. And one of my biggest fears was, like, right when I knew this stuff was going to be out in the world, I just I was like, I got to gird her up for the attack. You know, that was that was my feeling, not like, I'm so happy to share this with the world. It's like, now I'm going to get it. And... Uh, I've read a couple of things and I was surprised that like, you know, the ones that are just angry, I can identify the ones that were you know thoughtful and critical. Uh, I find helpful uh, in a way um, because there, I don't think about myself in the same way a good critic would think about me. So I'm sort of open to that. I don't know how long that'll last. You know, I don't spread it around. I don't go, okay, take a look at this mediocre review of my work. Uh, but like I, I take it to mind and I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I'm narcissistic enough to see when someone makes a connection that I would never have thought of to go like, wow, that was, that's kind of sharp. I wish I had intended that, but uh, no. Well, because I know your character on your TV show, yeah, like, man, is all caught up in that. And it really kind of explains the, you know, explains like so much of that character. I yeah. mean, I don't know if that character is exactly you or it's just close. an idea of, no, it's close. you know, uh, because I could... N- I could never do that, but I, but what Twitter read things like that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just seems like it's pouring fuel into his tank, you know, when sure. Well, maybe that, well, that might, that's might be the tank I run on, you know, maybe we run on a different tank. I'd, I'd more than happy to take your tank. It would probably provide (laughs) you a a lot of relief for a little while. So you telling me you've never engaged with, with a negative, uh, Uh -uh. from the beginning. I, I I think the last review I read was in 2000, and it was a good one, but I don't think I didn't think it was fair just to read good ones, so right. I just haven't read anything since then. Or out of respect for the people that are writing shitty things about you, you. <laughs> well, like well, like even with an interview, you know, right. like if you do an interview and then yeah. you read it, and then you'll just think, like my brother Paul was quoted in an interview one time, and that he won't do them anymore because he he he. He thought, "Is that what I was? That what I sound like? Is that what I talk like?" He was embarrassed. Yeah, but it could have just been the writer. You know yeah. what I mean? Like sometimes they take it out of context. And, yeah, or sometimes it can just be. Yeah. You know, I. Um. Uh, I, I, but I just don't read any of it because I thought, well, what's the point? Like, if you watch yourself on TV, then you're going to think, "Oh, I should never hold my head, my face in that angle." Mm. So don't watch yourself on TV, and if you read an interview with yourself and right no i just i just i just don't engage with myself so for you 
the work is done. You know, you put the work out there, and then you go do the readings, and you enjoy that, and and you know you get a lot out of that. But you know, the rest of the time, you know that you've done your part. You you don't need to. What? <laughs> oh, okay, okay, all right, all right, okay. <laughs> I guess you gotta go. It's like I'm over at your house playing. <laughs> we just got a knock on the door that David has to go. Where are you going? Uh, to I think I'm going to KCRW maybe. Oh, oh yeah. So you got to go down to the radio west side. Interview. Well, it was great talking to you. You too. Thanks for coming by. It's such a such a joy to be here. It was a real honor for me. Oh man! So that was a kind of a, a sweet, cute, awkward ending. But uh, what a what a joy! Seriously, really uh, an honor and a pleasure to talk to David Sedaris. And I think uh, it was fun. You know, I felt like we got to know each other a little bit. I hope you enjoyed that. As always, go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Get the app. Yeah, do it. Do whatever you need over there. Leave some comments. Uh, look into Lipson, our server. If you want to start a podcast, there's a deal that you can get at WTFPod.com. My calendar is there. I'm in town for a bit. I'm going to be up in Seattle for the Sub Pop uh, thingy. Just go to WTFPod.com. I got dates coming up in Nashville. I got dates coming up in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. I got dates coming up in Denver, I think. I got, there's stuff happening. I'm going out. I'm going Rochester. Just go to WTFPod.com and check out the calendar. And uh, it's time to write some new material. It's time to put myself, it's time to corner myself on stage until something comes out of me that's never come out of me before. Those are the best moments. Boomer lives! Boomer lives!